From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. I would also like to thank our podcast sponsor, Guarantee Commercial Title. Guarantee offers a new platform for the delivery of services based on the expertise and ingenuity of a visionary team of title professionals that identifies obstacles and creates solutions that result in a successful sale, construction, or financing of commercial real estate. To learn more, visit GuaranteeTitle.net. After a 42-year career, during which she founded one of the state's first women-owned architecture firms, and impacted some of the Twin Cities' most notable buildings, Linda McCracken-Hunt has retired from her architecture career. She started her career after graduating from the University of Minnesota with a Bachelor of Architecture in 1978. She spent time at Cunningham Architects, Architectural Alliance, now Alliance, and Ankeny Kell Architects, and then returned to the university where she was eventually appointed University Architect. McCracken Hunt left the university to join Studio 5 Architects, a firm that she co-owned with her husband, Tom Hunt. Her most recent employer, JLG Architects, called her a, quote, pioneer of women-owned architect firms. With Studio 5, she led teams that worked on the university's recreation and wellness center expansion, Phillips Community Center and Aquatic Center project, and U.S. Bank Stadium construction. She also provided owner representation services to the Regents Hospital expansion, Elmer L. Anderson Human Services Building, and Penfield Apartment Projects. JLG Architects acquired Studio 5 in 2016, and McCracken Hunt joined as a principal architect. Here, her projects included Frogtown Community Center and the Eau Claire City Hall. Throughout her career, she also served in several positions with the American Institute of Architects and received membership to its College of Fellows in 2009. The award is considered one of the highest honors in the profession. Out of all the projects that McCracken Hunt has impacted, community centers are her favorite, as she told reporter Kelly Bush in this episode of Beyond the Skyline. First thing, congrats on your retirement. One, it sounded like your last day on the job was in October, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. After uh, graduating from architecture school in 1978, that's a pretty long time. Yeah. (laughs) How was Yeah. How has the transition to retirement been? Well, I handled it better than I was expecting. My friends would be the first to admit that they didn't think I'd retire well and that I would always want to keep my fingers in things. And it's it's hard to step away, particularly because uh, projects don't all end the day you retire. You know, if you were a principal in charge on it or if you had an active role with the client on it. The projects are under construction, they're continuing. And so there's a transition of leadership on the project. We have project teams on all of our projects. And so the team remains the same and and that 
core team had had been really you know serving the clients well so there's no change for the clients in that regard but it's it's hard to walk away i when i get back uh this uh summer i I plan to go visit my projects and see how they're doing just because i can't not (laughs) and uh, jlg has been kind enough to keep a connection with me so that i can stay connected and find out how everything's going So it's really been good. Great. Glad to hear that. Well, I wanted to ask how JLG has been doing during the pandemic. Well, um, I'm not as tightly connected to them as I used to be, but I know that they're weathering the storm like so many architectural firms. It's been hard. I think a lot of projects probably went on hold because of all the uncertainties. And um, I, you know, it, it, but but we're a hundred JLG is a hundred percent employee owned and the whole firm just kind of steps up and gets it done. So they're pretty busy doing a lot of good stuff. Great. I'm curious, can you give me an overview of some of the more interesting projects JLG was working on in recent months? Well, they have JLG has a very strong sports studio that's doing hockey arenas at Colorado college and then one out in New England, and we have uh, they have hockey all over, all over the United States. Um, they have a very strong medical group. They have a strong K twelve group. They have a number, a civic and public group, uh, and we do a, my one of the things I focused on a lot of and really enjoyed in my career were recreation and community centers. And New Ulm Community Center is under construction and some other ones recently were completed. So um, we're in many different, JLG's in many different sectors and, and very community-based. They have uh, 12 offices across Minnesota, North Dakota and South Dakota. And that gives us the ability to be in towns and be connected to the communities in those towns instead of one big office, we're spread over many cities and connect at each of those cities in the community. Okay, that's interesting. I wasn't familiar with that about JLG. Yeah, yeah. Strong Minneapolis office, but Mm -hmm. also a very strong Fargo and Grand Forks office. And then offices in other areas, we are, we are um, compl- I think they've started playing in the Coralville, Iowa, uh, River, Iowa River Landings Arena. Uh, and we have work in Wisconsin. So we tend to be in that sort of five state Midwest area for most of the studios, the exception being the sport that tends to go national with hockey. Okay, okay, gotcha. Great. Well, I wanted to pivot and chat about kind of the broader scale here. So from your perspective, how did the pandemic impact your industry, you know, nationwide across the board? I think what where we're going to see a big change, and I think we're starting to see news trickle on it, is everyone's been working from home Mm -hmm. and uh, many companies had their workforce work from home without really necessarily feeling good about having workers being remote. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of companies are discovering, I know um, companies that have discovered if they're just as productive, it's just as effective. Yes, there are more Zoom meetings than in-person meetings, Mm -hmm. but work is getting done and things are still happening. 
And I think what we're going to see is one of the biggest changes is some of that continuing and companies like Target's recent announcement of really reevaluating how much office space do we need? And perhaps uh, I know it had started in the workplace, but I think the pandemic has accelerated this. Maybe you don't need a desk for everyone. Maybe you need a desk for 35% of your employees and they either come in sometimes or don't or come in on days when it's a team meeting, but not. And, and that what we'll see is a real change, I think, in downtown real estate. Mm. So how will that be impact- space available? If everyone were to take the target model, uh, they wouldn't need the amount of space they thought they needed. And what does that mean to a downtown? I think the perception has been in downtown Minneapolis that that it's not as safe as before the pandemic. You know, there's more street crime, there's more, you know, petty crime uh, because there um, aren't as many people around being, you know, to see and be seen and feel safe. And also, you know, maybe the police presence isn't what it was, but all these factors combine to a, a uncertainty on, in downtown. I think there's some real concerns and I know the downtown council is probably really working on, you know, what does all of this mean? If, tar- if Target's pulling out of its downtown space, who's to follow? Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for architects and the firms? Well, space will have to be repurposed, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the way spaces are laid out is going to be eval- reevaluated. More group meeting and small meeting space. And, and will they space out single desks to be six feet apart? I, I, you know, I, I think it'll cause some changes in the interior <clears throat> uh, as people evaluate maybe new, new modes of working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Zoom is so commonplace now uh, and web programs like that that allow everyone to meet like you and I are meeting that maybe people won't be meeting so much in person. We, uh, being JLG traveling across the upper Midwest, there were many times where your client might be a four-hour drive. You drive four hours, have a two-hour meeting and drive four hours, perhaps in this new model people will be more efficient and think about, you know, I want to see the client and I want to be there. And there's reasons to be there as well, but maybe some of the meetings would be, you know, on a web-based model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. Well, are there any challenges that come with that, the changing industry? I think people are going to have to be really nimble and adapt to, uh, this change. And I think as architects, we can lead a lot of those discussions about what this all means. I think people have gone through a lot and uh, it's going to take a while, even when they feel safe. Like I've had both my vaccines. I feel safe. Mm -hmm. I can, I wear my mask when I go to the grocery store, but I'm not as worried as I used to be, you know, because Mm -hmm. I, I feel safe. And people get more of that feeling safe and venture out what will it be? What will it mean for more outdoor patio space in, in the warmer climates when it finally gets nice? There's no better place than an outdoor patio in, mm-hmm. in Minnesota. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. It even take, it, if it just has to hit 50 and yeah. everyone's swarming outside, <laughs> places like where I am now in Arizona, 
it can base its whole it can base its whole delivery on an outdoor model mm -hmm. for most of it for a lot a lot of the year so maybe some of this will wear off on us of just I mean not getting colds no one's gotten sick this year because we've kept our distance we mm -hmm. washed our hands we've worn a mask yeah. so there might be more to this uh, that we should incorporate into everyday life yeah. Yeah. I appreciate not getting any midwinter colds that, you know, the right. ones you normally got. I've, I've appreciated that. Well, uh -huh. let's, yeah, let's pivot and chat a little bit about your career here. So I saw that you spent time in several roles at the University of Minnesota, you know, including university architect, and then you worked with the university in your Studio 5 Architects on the Recreational and Wellness Center expansion. So yes. I'm curious, how is working with the university different from working with other clients? The university is a very strong, multi-headed owner, like so many large corporations are, where there are many interests at the university. You have uh, a chief financial officer who is, you know, the budget is what the budget is. You have people in capital planning that manage the project that have to deliver it on time and on budget. And that is their role. And they come from the design and construction industry and they direct the architects and contractors that work on university projects. But then you have the other side of it. You have the client, you know, have, you have the you know, department of surgery. If it's a surgical suite, you have the department of recreational sports, if it's a rec center and they're, they're, they're saying, you know, this is the only time we're ever going to get a new building or a renovated building or this new library. And these are the things we want. We want, you know, this much library space for the books. We want reading rooms. We want this, we want that. And the architects are challenging them on their space needs and also bringing innovative ideas about the libraries of the future. And so you have a client that's the library staff, for example, and you have a capital planning group that is really the client you're working for. And they are trying to be responsive to the library staff at all also, but they have a budget that they must live within. So there's all of these competing um, demands to get the best building you can out of the funds available in the schedule you have incorporating as many things as you can for that user group, what we call a user group. And sometimes the user groups don't get everything they want. Perhaps the state or the university, you know, the, to really do this right would have been 20 million, but they only have 14 million. So compromises are made and, and you have to really lead through those compromises to get the most, the best solution you can. So I had been one of those project managers for capital planning and I had been in the leadership in capital planning. And then when I became the architect that they hired, uh, one advantage was that I knew how to work it through their system. You know, you have to take it to a certain point of approval of scope, schedule, and budget, and then you need to go to the Board of Regents and get approval. Mm -hmm. And so you have these steps along the way that you must follow. And the university is a great client. The university uh, has done some very progressive buildings with architecture. You look at the Weissman Art Museum, you look at the architecture school, they are willing to experiment with design, they're willing to experiment with solar and you know other um, 
innovations in design and construction. So in that regard, they're a real forward thinking client mm -hmm. and architects love to work for them because they, they understand the quality. They also build for quality. They build for 50 year life, a hundred year life. So they're putting in, you know, good quality windows, good quality systems. You're not cutting corners to reconcile the budget. You're not putting in a less expensive mechanical system that won't work as well. You're still keeping quality. What you end up having to compromise on then is amount of space, but okay. they still, they build the quality. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Sometimes in a private company, they may cut corners, they may be convinced by someone that mm -hmm. you could simplify or perhaps lessen the quality of the mechanical system in order to keep more square footage, but that may not be a good solution long term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Great. Well, I wanted to back up and um, ask about one thing you mentioned way early on in our interview is that some of your favorite spaces to design and the projects to work on were community spaces. So yeah. can you elaborate on that? Yeah, with the recent rec centers I had worked on, we had really involved the community. And I think a good example is the Frogtown Community Center. It's a beautiful community center for in Frogtown, uh, just north of the state capital. Many of the Minneapolis and St. Paul, we've worked with Minneapolis Park Board and St. Paul Park Board. And, you know, they're really working to bring community centers and recreation centers to the underserved communities in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing what a community center can do in a neighborhood that has very little resources mm -hmm. uh, and how they embrace it. They, uh, they are using these centers. They have a teen center. They have an after school program. They have a senior center. They have you know, you can just come and play basketball or play outside. Mm -hmm. There are, it, it's a safe haven in some of these neighborhoods. And actually uh, on an interview for the Frogtown Community Center with a local radio station that set it up in the community center, um, they said that buildings like this save lives. And I think they really do because it is a safe, welcoming place you know, to get off the streets, to find some comfort, to get a snack, to have help with homework, all the different things besides the fact that you can work out and be healthy. And uh, it's, they're, they're just great places to have in the community. And we're lucky that the Minneapolis Park Board and St. Paul Park Board understand that and wanna do such um, wonderful models. They don't have to be that large. They just need to be present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's cool. It must be, it must, feel good working on something meaningful like that. It does. It does. Yeah. We, we include the community early on in the design process, asking, asking the young people and asking the community, what, you know, what do you want to have in here? You know, there's a recording studio if you want to make music. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, so the, everyone can get engaged in the process early on before it solidifies to really provide their input. And then when you're at the dedication and you see those same like teenagers you've been working with for the last two years, you know, see how excited they are, you know, that you hit a home run with them and it's going <laughs> to sure. be just great place. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I wanted to ask about one other project, which I'm sure you've been asked about a million times, but U.S. Bank Stadium. I wanted to ask a, a question about that. Um, my question is, what is one thing that the general public might not know about the design of U.S. Bank Stadium? I think the most fascinating thing about the design of U.S. Bank Stadium is the ETFE roof. And that's that half a roof that is clear. Mm -hmm. 
and it is like glass, but it's actually about the thickness of a Ziploc freezer bag. Oh, really? It's an extremely strong, uh, ETFE is an acronym for, uh, I can't remember the whole wording of it now, but it's like a Teflon type, very strong product. I think initially invented for the air, aerospace industry, very strong, but extremely lightweight. Mm -hmm. And that roof is letting sunshine in and you can actually get sunburned. It's letting sunshine in. So you feel like you're outside, mm -hmm. yet you're inside a warm environment with your coat off. Mm -hmm. And it is lightweight. It is uh, strong. You could park cars on top of that, but it's the thickness of a Ziploc baggie. It, mm -hmm. And yet it won't ever collapse like the original Metrodome because mm -hmm. there's structure every 10 feet. And what's interesting is because it's so lightweight, those structural members are much lighter steel than they would have been if it had been a traditional roof. So you save on the structure itself is lighter because the skin is lighter and yet it brings in all this sunshine in the winter and year round and it's like daylight inside. You don't need to even have the lights on. It's a fascinating uh, material. It's, it was at the time the largest installation of ETFE in North America. There's uh, the use of this product is more common in Europe and I believe the Beijing Olympics had the uh, bird's nest, I think the, the arena was that was, yeah. you know, this. And so it's a fascinating material. I'd love to figure out a way of using it again. It's, mm -hmm. it's um, it really makes the stadium unique that you are inside, but outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. See, that's something I didn't know. So I appreciate that. Um, let's see. I have uh, just one or two more questions here. So <laughs> Um, now that you've stepped back from the industry and are retired, I wanted to ask for some candid feedback. You know, what is something you'd like to see changed in the industry? Hmm. I think uh, the team process of designing and building a building is improving where contractors are collaborating with us earlier on mm -hmm. and we're working together uh, with architects and contractors and owners. And the more collaboration amongst all the team members, uh, the better, I think, in getting quality uh, out of the built environment. Um, architects are very talented at imagining, creating innovative spaces and, and really Beautiful, beautiful spaces and buildings and buildings that will hold up over time as being iconic. And we need the contractors working with us to deliver those and not be so on occasion more adversarial amongst all the parties. So I think the more the construction and design community come together, the better. Okay, okay, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, well, that was everything I wanted to ask about. So in our last moment here, is there anything else you wanted to add in or mention? No, I've, I've enjoyed uh, every bit of my 42 years of working as an architect. There were times 
Uh, early on for women in the 70s as architects, it, we, were, uh, we were probably fairly rare. And uh, I think the design and construction community has come a long way since then in understanding that women architects know what they're doing <laughs> and are as good or better than the men. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 took, it took a while there in that 40 year period to get there. And I'm glad to see the progress that's being made mm -hmm. with women and minorities being accepted in design and construction. Oh, that's great. Well, I, so you started your own architect firm. And when I was reading the release, it sounded like it was one of the first in Minnesota. And I, one of the first women owned firms in Minnesota, is that correct? Yes, and yeah. I, there were there were, and I think there were some women architects practicing that were doing residential. Mm -hmm. um, we were doing commercial and institutional, okay. uh, and so at that point there were that not that many women-owned firms, and even fewer minority-owned firms mm -hmm. uh, in in architecture at that time. Yeah. Okay. How, how was that experience starting your own firm along with your husband, correct? Yeah. My husband had had the firm for um, actually at that point, um, 15 years. Mm -hmm. So I joined as his, he had had some business partners. He was at that time, a sole proprietor. He was looking for a business partner. Mm -hmm. And um, I was thinking about leaving the university and doing something else. And so it was a good fit and it uh, worked out great at the time. So there was a lot of the structure of the firm was set up, but I was the marketing and the client contact in the firm. And um, I don't think people realize how difficult it is to run an architectural firm, find the work, deliver the work, make a profit. Many times <clears throat> it'll be a fee-based decision on a client where they want the firm that's the lowest fee, mm -hmm. that firm may not even break even on that project as a result. So mm -hmm. the business side of architecture is not something that's really taught to architecture students. Mm -hmm. And uh, they learn it, I think, as they grow in a firm. In the case like JLG Architects that's employee earned, owned, all the employees every month see the financials and know how the firm is doing. But most firms are not employee owned and they keep that behind the screen of the young architects to even know if the project they're working on is profitable mm -hmm. and how to make it more profitable you know and so uh, there's a lot about the business side that isn't taught or learned and once you are a CEO of a firm you're in it deep mm -hmm. <laughs> so you learn it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> hands-on experience. It's the best. Yeah, you learn by fire. Invaluable <laughs> lessons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's everything for me. So thanks for joining me. I really appreciate this. This was super interesting. Oh, Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce, or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.